continuing the thread uh, that Mary Grace um, began of uh, the 37 wings of the Dharma and uh, also particularly the, uh, uh, the inherent presence of mindfulness and loving kindness in each other, the fact that they seem to be really inextricably linked one with the other, part of one and another. And continuing also uh, the question of uh, what has become more clear to you since last we met, particularly emphasizing what is it that we want to become more clear to us? Why? How will that becoming more clear to us liberate our minds from suffering? So that's a great deal, just as I also realized that I was going to, in what I had to say, cover apropos of the 37 wings, uh, the three characteristics of experience and the four noble truths and the four efforts, which seems like a great deal. But actually there's just one dharma and it's really impossible to talk about any one little piece of it without everything else being inextricably part of it. So we'll see how that goes. I'd like to start it with an exercise that we can do together for two minutes. This is a contemplation, a meditation, (laughs) that you don't have to change your position to have a better one or a more upright one. You're fine the way you are. I'd like uh, to invite you to close your eyes, though, and uh, I'd like for you to say these two phrases to yourself as contemplations, as meditative phrases, as you would meta-resolves. And uh, I'd like you to pay particular attention to how your mind and body feels as you say these two phrases. So I'd like you to say them and say them just as you would meta-phrases over and over and over again. You can do one on one breath, one on the next breath, and then the first, and then the second, and really, two minutes. The two phrases are, may I meet this moment fully, and may I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend.
Did they feel a little different to you, one than the other? I hope so. I I find, um, for me, the word friend is particularly uplifting, and uh, I feel like my mind softens a little bit, like my insides soften a little bit. Uh, The the word friend has a feeling of uh, cordiality about it. I actually think that uh, Mary Grace said it last night when she said, uh, every moment of genuine mindfulness is actually kind. It's meeting a moment with a certain amount of curious interest and enough tolerance to not prejudge it, tolerance enough, forbearance enough, say, aha, here's this experience. It has a kind of um, a friendly quality about it. I think that kind of friendliness... uh, really makes, uh, it, it moves both ways. It adds an element of uh, uh, wisdom into the practice immediately. If I uh, see someone coming, or an experience is arising, the experience is, here comes so-and-so, and the last time I met them, I didn't particularly like them, so the mind, when they see, here comes so-and-so, the mind has a tendency to grimace a little bit, ah, oh, here comes so-and-so. Suppose I don't prejudge that. Suppose I say, here comes so-and-so. And how do I know that they aren't going to be completely different this time? And I might actually see them in a new light if I don't trail my stories in with me. And maybe that would be, uh, they would experience me differently, and I would experience them differently. And it would be good for them, and it would be good for me. I would spare us both the discomfort of reactivity. Maybe I don't need it. I spare myself a lot of distress if I don't go through all my habitual reactivities. So it has an element of kindness both towards others and towards life, but towards oneself. It's a very wholesome feeling that, like the idea of friendship, seems wholesome. And later on we'll talk a little bit about the cultivation of wholesome states that the Buddha taught as part of what he taught as wise effort, that when the mind is filled with wholesome states, it not only feels better, but it's more open to insight. It's less, um, it's less um, tense. It's more relaxed. It's more v- open to see what's arising. So we'll go back a little bit and talk about the story of the Buddha as Mary Grace began it last night of uh, the Siddhartha Gautama's own realization of really the human dilemma. What will we do? Here's this life that's <coughs> happening, which has a particular trajectory for everyone and which means that sooner or later we will lose what's dear to us or they will lose us or that there's an element of uh, a, a loss that's built into the life experiences. And his intimation, by looking at that monk who was serene in his deportment, his intimation that there's a way to deal with that, that there's a way to cultivate a mind that says, this is the way life is, and I can be present for it fully, with interest and curiosity and goodwill, without being frightened of it. 
his sense that there's a way to cultivate a mind that can do that, his determination to find that way, his going off, his seeking of teachers, his practice, and then his teachings. So if we think now about the teachings of the Buddha that have come down from 2,500 years ago until now, uh, what I really, really enjoy a lot are the stories of the early teachings of the Buddha as he met the monks that he had been practicing with before he went off on his own to Bodhgaya. Uh, they're filled with stories of uh, the, 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 those early stories are filled with incidents, examples of where the Buddha met first those particular monks, but later on groups of people. And he didn't teach them to meditate. He told them what he thought was true. He said life is challenging. The challenge is compounded when we don't, when the mind cannot accommodate the truth of, his exper- of its experience that it's possible for the mind to accommodate, that peace is possible, and that there's a path to that cultivation. So that, that becomes really one way of saying the Four Noble Truths that have come down to us until this time and form the center of every lineage of Buddhism, even that they differ in other aspects. It's also the center, I think, of every kind of spiritual understanding. Life is by its own nature complex and challenging and the wise mind is one that can discern this I can change, this I can't and know the difference between them. He also taught that same understanding in, uh, in, the, in the form of the three characteristics of experience that everything is impermanent that's actually the source of the challenge, that we can't keep things comfortable. We need to be addressing things anew moment to moment. That actually not only is everything impermanent, but everything is changing as it's arising. That in, a, in the arising is the end of, of any particular experience. Sometimes a long trajectory between the beginning and the end. Sometimes momentary beginnings and ends. But everything is transient. It's actually the last thing that he is purported to have said before his life ended. It's the next to the last thing, the penultimate thing that he said was transient. It are all conditioned things. And then I, the last sentence, my preferred uh, translation of the last sentence comes from Andy Olensky, who has translated it as move into the future with confidence. I love that line. It's often translated as strive on with diligence, but I like the other one better. (laughs) Move into the future with confidence. It's a little sweeter. Uh, Who knows? Andy Olensky is a preeminent poly teacher, so I don't think he made it up. So that must be another reading of it. So everything is impermanent. And if you see that, then you see that that's really what you have to see. That was when the Buddha ended his life. He said, that's the important thing. If you see that, you'll see that struggling, really, with life as it's unfolding, doesn't make any sense. Because life as it's unfolding is unfolding 
as a res- in the way that it is as a result of so many contingent causes. The three characteristics are the impermanence, the fact that struggle, suffering is the result of struggle with the inevitable. And the third is the teaching on interconnectedness, that everything, karma really, that everything is a result of something else because of this, that, and that it's a lawful cosmos and that things happen because of other things. And sometimes what we do can be a changing factor in what's continuing to happen, but what's arising is the result of everything that's ever happened, really, the contingent causes. The Buddha said that uh, thinking about karma was one of the imponderables, that everything is so infinitely multi-caused that to recognize that is to recognize there are some things that are more or less within our control, not really very much, actually, and to be able to work with the idea that this is how life is. It happens, it unfolds for everybody in its own idiosyncratic way. But for everyone, there is challenge and loss and the possibility of meeting those with kindness and with compassion for oneself and for everyone else, which is, I think, the great clue that 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 having been understood, it transforms our minds and hearts to kindness. Look around and say, everybody is in the same boat. It's not uniquely me. My friend and our colleague, our colleague Howard Cohn, says the first time he heard the Four Noble Truths, he cried. He said he, it made him feel so good that he was not having his difficulties and struggles idiosyncratically that everybody else was was different from him, that everybody struggles. So the interesting thing that I wanted to go forth, forward with now was the idea that the Buddha, when he began to teach, according to the scripture anyway, didn't teach meditation. He went from place to place, very much uh, in the style of Jesus, teaching by telling stories and parables, and he went here and he went there. And they're wonderful to read those early stories. And they often end by saying, and as the Blessed One finished his teachings, behind the eyes of so and so many people, 40 people, 60 people, 200 people, arose the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I love that. That means that all those people never got caught again in greed or hatred or delusion. They so got it. Like, amazingly. I, I, I think of this and I love it because I think there's a great precedent for that happening. I actually get excited often when someone else is going to give a Dharma talk and I think, you know, I'll really listen to this. How do I know that by now the necessary and sufficient conditions haven't been met so that all of a sudden the pieces that I know with a small K will become the pieces that I know with a capital K irrevocably in my mind, so transforming my mind that it will never again get caught in greed or hatred or delusion. I love that idea. Why not? I really suggested to you. It it wakes up the mind. It's exciting. So I wanted to think about this business of why did did those particular people wake up 
and why were they liberated from taints? And it says their hearts through not clinging. What had they done to prime their minds so that they were ready for that particular image, that particular teaching to go in? I think their hearts were not their hearts through not clinging. One way to understand it is they were ready to see things in a new way. They were ready to see things in a new way. You know what I just realized? Do you remember those, I think they're called stereograms or something, but you look at something and it looks like a puzzle. It looks like maybe a randomly generated, complex, uh, computer-generated bunch of lines and rhythmic patterns. And if you look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it, actually suddenly you see that there are three bears or something like that, or something that's hidden in them. I think they're called stereograms. And you have to just focus your eyes in a certain way so you can see what's the pattern that's in there. There are books of stereograms. And sometimes if I, if, when I've looked at them and I see some of them and I get them and I see others and I don't get them, and people say, well, look, it's right there. Don't you see it? It's right there. And you, and you do it nearer and further and nearer and further and you don't see it. Because you don't see it until you're ready to see it. But then there's a certain moment when the mind is open and you do see it. Someone has to point it out to you. It's just there. So in, in February, just last month, I was in Costa Rica for a week teaching. I was really a, it was the first time that I was on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. It was beautiful there. And one of the things that Costa Rica is known for, it's, it's one of the major flyways of migrating birds. So that <clears throat> one morning, I went with a number of other people very early in the morning to uh, a place not far from the place we were staying where there was a, an enterprise that took people out, 12 of us in a flat-bottomed little boat, everybody with their own binoculars, through um, kind of marshes filled with uh, jungle-like trees and foliage around, and uh, to see birds for two hours. And I've never done that before, and I haven't studied a lot about birds before. And no sooner had we pulled away from the dock that somebody said, look over there, in that tree, there's a such and such. And everybody, oh, see that? And I'm trying to find, first of all, the tree. What tree? This is a jungle. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of trees there. And they say, well, the tree that's the second tree over from the palm, you see that? On the third branch up, next to the second knot hole, oh, it's gone. So by the time I find the tree and the thing and I get them, it's already gone. Then they see another one in another place and another one in another place. And, And it went on like that. Now, I did see some of them. I, I actually did see the great blue heron and uh, egrets. I mean, you can't miss them, right? They're extremely big. And, and they stand there for a while before they fly, so you get a chance to see them. And I didn't, I didn't feel uh, intimidated. I just felt, wow, what I could see if I knew how to see. I saw the iguana. Uh, someone said, Oh, look, there's an iguana on the tree. It took a long time to see the iguana, but it was pretty big. It was a pretty big iguana, but it was lying on a, uh, on a branch. And iguanas are 
fantastically uh, created so that they pretty much look like the branch. And this iguana lying there exactly still on the branch looked like a bumpy part of the branch. I thought, you know, creation is magic. Look at this. It's wonderful. And I realized how much when the mind is picked up by how beautiful the world is and how amazing creation is, it's a great thing because recognizing the difficulties in life and being moved to compassion is one half of, I think, what we are trying to do in this mind training. And the other half, which I think keeps the mind buoyant and energetic enough to respond with compassion and and interest and energy in this life, is being buoyed up by the possibility of being alive. I felt this is terrific that I lived long enough to see this thing right here in Costa Rica, and I never saw it before. So that whole idea of if you know what to look for, if you know how to look, you can see. If you know how to listen, there was a story not so long ago of a uh, uh, man who uh, was playing the violin in the New York subway. You know how there is musicians who play in the New York subway. He played for about 40 minutes and trains came in and out and... uh, um, people got off the trains and went by him, and the whole thing was being filmed by a hidden camera. And in the 40 minutes that he was being filmed, uh, at the end of the time, he had $32, I think, in his in his hat that was on the floor. And um, the only person who had stopped long enough to want to watch was a, a toddler holding on to his mother's hand. It was really a little bit fascinated, but the mother pulled him along and they left. And the violinist was Joshua Bell, who's one of the most preeminent contemporary violinists. And uh, the, play, the pieces he were pl- was playing were the most difficult pieces in the violin repertory. And he was playing it on a very precious Stradivarius violin, and everybody walked by. And I, when I read that, I, was, I told it to a friend of mine. And I said, wow. And I said, everybody would do that. She said, no, you wouldn't. I said, another musician wouldn't do that. I said, another violinist. She said, any musician wouldn't have done it. They would have gotten off the train and noticed, aha, there's something different here. It's like the bird watchers know what to look for. And the musicians know what to listen for. So I thought to myself, that's really the thing that's important for me to talk about is what, when we're here, hoping for insight, what are we hoping for insight about? What should we look for while we're here? The last day of being in Costa Rica um, without my computer, out of telephone range of everyone. Uh, I was about to leave. I had left my room. I was congregating with other people in the main reception area, waiting for the uh, car that was going to drive us the two-hour trip to the airport. And uh, they have, as many hotels do, uh, a computer in the reception area that guests can use if they don't have their own computer. And I thought, well, 
I'll just check on the computer here uh, to check that my plane hasn't been delayed. Um, so I really hope my plane hasn't been delayed because I have to make a connection in Houston and it would be problematic if it, I'd missed my connection in Houston. I'd get home very late. Anyway, I click onto the computer and it lights up and uh, the person before me clearly has not signed out of the computer. So uh, their um, inbox is displayed in front of me. And so you feel right away, oh oh dear, you know, I'm sure this person meant to close this. But I was inescapable that the first message on on this, you know, here's all the people who have written to you, and and the first line of their message, the first message is, uh, uh, Anna, our mother is dying today. And I looked around and I wondered which one of those people waiting for this airport bus was Anna, who had just checked her email and found that out. And I looked around and, you know, I, I knew some of the people I'd been teaching there that week, but I didn't know everybody's name. And suddenly people looked a lot more... Um, I felt a lot more affection for them. I felt closer to all those people. They couldn't have all been Anna because there were men there as well, but it could have been anybody who could have gotten that message. It could have been me who had gotten that message. We're all going to get that message sooner or later if we haven't already gotten it about our mother. But we'll get it about our father or somebody else and our sister or our good friend. That that's maybe the most fundamental part of life is the fact that we lose people. And all of a sudden... I could feel my mind really just relax about getting to the airport, feel affection for all those people that I was with. And I thought to myself, whether or not my plane is late is insignificant. There'll be another plane. Not going to be another mother for this person. What's more, every grievance that I've been nursing every bitterness in the mind, every unforgiven whatever, they're all insignificant. Really. What's significant is that things pass that are dear to us, things happen to everyone, We're really not very much in charge of our lives. The only thing I'm really in charge of is my own mind and heart. And that's if I develop some skill about being in charge of it. It's the only thing I possibly could be in charge of. And that troubling the mind is really optional. Troubling the mind with the kind of stuff that come through it and say, well, I'll just fret about this and I'll just worry about that and I'll just this and I'll just that. 
It's really optional. We could just rest in this moment. You never know about anything. The first retreat I went on was a weekend retreat uh, years and years ago. Then three months later, I, I uh, went away for a uh, 14-day retreat. But that whole weekend, I was so unhappy. I was very unhappy to be there. With a, 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 it was someone's home down in the South Bay. It was overcrowded. We slept uh, too many people in each room on the floor on mattresses everybody getting dressed and undressed too close to each other. I was feeling I'm too old, what am I here for? Why am I doing this? What am I doing? I can't get it. I came because my husband said it would be a good thing to do. I didn't know what it was about. I was unhappy the whole, and, and I didn't know there wasn't going to be any coffee there, and I had a terrible headache. <laughs> and I, and I, didn't, uh, I was waiting for him to pick me up, actually, at the end of the weekend to give him a to tell him what I thought about that suggestion. <laughs> so, um, but I was doing walking meditation in the living room of that house on the last day. Um, just before we left to go home. And I was walking back and forth in front of the fireplace and on the mantelpiece there was one of those redwood burls that you buy in state park stores where they say sisters are friends forever and that kind of home sweet home and there was there was such a redwood burl and it said life is so difficult how can we be anything but kind and I thought ah and I think actually that it was that sign that brought me back to my next retreat I thought that wow that was like the first transmission that seemed so so true to me and I guess I thought, if that's what they teach here, maybe I should be doing that. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship of uh, mindfulness and loving-kindness practice. Because I think, as Mary Grace said last night, as, we, as I've been saying this all the time, that you re- I really don't think you can think of them as anything but inherent in each other, that mindfulness is absolutely kind, and that to do, uh, even to, to, to love is actually to, to know that you love, to know, love and know that you love, and know the kind of love that we think about as benevolence or goodwill or the permutation of love that's compassion or the permutation of love that's appreciation actually the permutation of love that's equanimity that says this world is just fine and I'm fine and I, I, I and it's, it's actually a love of the truth and uh, suffering is optional to think about that kind of love whether we say phrases whether we cultivate that spirit of goodness in our mind and heart in order to do that, you need all the alertness of what we think of as being mindfulness. You need all that alertness to know that we feel that way and towards whom we feel that way and in spite of what we feel that way. 
So it's tremendously dependent on uh, mindful attention, on being awakened. I love that idea that when the Buddha gave those talks, and some people, they just got it. He said it's like this, and they got it. I sometimes have the feeling that he taught meditation and gave the instructions for meditation for people like me who didn't just get it just like that, you know, that, that this is the bluebird reading group or something, you know, that, that comes early because they didn't just get it by looking at words and start to read when they were three years old. You know, we had to learn phonics. So I think that maybe, you know, I made that up. Nobody said that. It's my own take on what, what it is. But there aren't so many teaching of my of meditation suttas. But the foundations of mindfulness sutta says there are four ways. It says, it actually, it says this is the way to the end of suffering. And then there are four particular ways, four foundations of mindfulness. And it's it's as if I think the Buddha had said, look. You didn't get it in that whole just immediately, wow, look at that, I got it. So let's look at let's look at our experience, let's use this experience, and let's look at it actually through four different perspectives. Let's look at it through the perspective of the body and the breath in it, which we've been emphasizing in these days. And as I say this, you'll recognize that this will be the progression through which we'll give instructions for the rest of the time. He says, let's look at the breath and then the body. Everything that's true about everything you can see in the breath arising and passing away in the body, that it comes and goes, that it changes, that controlling it is impossible. If you try to control it, you don't, it, it would be, suffering would arise. That it's all connected. That because of this, that, because of this, that. And not only because breathing in happens, breathing out happens, but because the trees and the green greenery and the ferns and the vines and the grasses, they're also breathing in and out all the time. And they are breathing in and out in uh, synchrony with us so that we are breathing in what they breathe out. And they're breathing in what we breathe out. And there's a way to be just with the simple practice of breath and actually connect feeling... The whole of being is connected. The whole of creation is connected. Everything is connected. That this breathing in and out continues as long as these lungs are viable and as long as the biosphere is viable. Everything is connected. He said you can pay attention to the uh, the, the aspect of experience that's uh, um, feeling tone. Mary Grace mentioned that feeling tone is the awareness of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that arises with really with every moment of experience. Sometimes we don't notice because it's not intensely one way or the other, but really every moment of experience arises with a valence. And it's important to know about that, not so that we can flatten out so we won't have any valences at all and it'll be just everything is fine, that there are certain things that the mind says, oh, wow, and other things that the mind says, oh, fooey, 
you know. Sometimes actually I think the whole day is like fooey, wow, fooey, oh good, <laughs> fooey, great. You know, if you think about this sitting, that lunch, this, 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 that, that all day long you think about how many of those fooeys and wows you had today. You think the mind is probably going to be exhausted at the end of the day. But to be able to see them and to have a wise response about, of, about them, to be able to say, you know, this sitting here in this dentist's chair for this long amount of time with all this apparatus in my mouth is very unpleasant, but it's temporal. It'll pass. In an hour from now, I'll be out of here. And the mind stays even with that. It's still a fooey, but, you know, the mind can deal with that. I've, a lot, I think, is what we're practicing here is the mind dealing with fooey, unhappiness, not liking. Really, because if we, if we, if we don't notice it, it's heedlessness about um, unpleasantness that causes the mind, without our knowing it, to contract and uh, in its constricted state to not be able to see clearly what's true and what's right in front of all of us. Body and breath, feeling tone. I'm going to go to the fourth foundation and skip the third because I'm going to come back to it. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is really seeing how the world, how consciousness works, how things work, seeing the patterns of things that the moon is waxing and waning, that the sun is rising and setting, that uh, uh, that we start to eat with an appetite and then the appetite isn't there anymore. Just all the ways in which we begin to see the three characteristics. All day long, things arise and pass away and arise and pass away. And that the mind that doesn't struggle is the mind that isn't suffering. It's the mind of peace. And the third foundation of mindfulness is attention to what's called attention to mind or the contents of mind. It could be thoughts. Sometimes... Uh, uh, it, it says in the sutta, the practitioner notices mind full of thoughts or mind empty of thoughts. I love that because it does not suggest that empty is better than full. It's just you know what's going on there. And it's rarely, that the, very rare that the mind is empty. Sometimes it stops. But it's not that necessarily that there should be few or many, but how at ease the, the mind is around what's there. Mind, lots of thoughts, no, not so many thoughts. Mind with wholesome states and mind with not wholesome states. This is coming back to the word wholesome and what I said before about kindness and cordiality being such a wholesome kind of a thing. That the mind filled with goodwill, um, compassion, affection, appreciation, joy, peace, those are wholesome states. They not only feel good, but they buoy the mind up and they keep it open and able to see what's right in front of us all the time. That everybody's in the same boat, right with us. And everybody becomes dear. And every moment becomes precious. Those wholesome states are wonderful to cultivate just in and of themselves and to cultivate because they actually are the antidote to bitterness and um, lust and envy and dismay and um, greed and, you know, moments of, uh, all kinds of moments come up in the mind 
I was, I was thinking about this this morning. It actually came up in relationship in in, in, in uh, practice discussion with somebody. You know, we have all kinds of thoughts come up in the mind that we that we're not that we're surprised by because they're not particularly noble. <laughs> have an ignoble thought or a vengeful thought, and they think to yourself, "How could I have an ignoble thought? You're in the middle of uh, you know, we're in Eden here." Or a, a, a vengeful thought. Come, I'm doing mindfulness and loving kindness practice. I just had a vengeful thought, and we we talked about the idea that they arise. They arise because of conditions. Who knows why? But I, we decided that we could have the uh, the uh, cookie on the floor rule. Rule. You know, if a cookie falls on the floor and it's there less than 30 seconds, you can still eat it. Nothing happens to it. It's a rule with children. If it falls down, you can pick it up and eat it. It's just it's not there a long time. Something arises in the mind, and it's there a little bit. You don't have to make a fuss about it. I had an ignoble thought. Okay, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It's fine. I'm okay. It's okay. I'm letting it go. That's five seconds, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to upset the mind's natural ease and peace and goodwill. Everything arises. It doesn't have to be a problem. You don't have to do a big thing about it. Just put it down. Just put it down. You wake up from having fallen asleep. And, and you know, we all take little naps here on the Zafu. It's like a power nap. You fall asleep a little bit. Then you wake up and you think, oh, I wasn't here. But now I am breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Don't trouble yourself. You could make a million stories, but I'll never be a good meditator. Whoa. My teacher Sharon said to me many years ago, um, when I, w- I was actually when I began to practice metta, I was on retreat studying with her, and I'd come to the door to leave an interview a practice discussion, that's what we're calling them now. But anyway, because it is. Um, I'd have my hand on the doorknob, and she'd say, as I was about to leave, she'd say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I think to myself, oh, that's a nice thing to say. It's saying, like, have a good day, or it's a salutation, I assumed. And much later, it suddenly occurred to me that it's actually an, an instruction, uh, and the instruction works for me. It, it worked. I discovered that because I was continuing on that retreat, and I'd be doing sitting or walking or whatever, and suddenly something floats through my mind. It's kind of like a, you're going along as a fish, and everything is fine, fine, fine. And here comes a bait going by. That's a particular a lure <laughs> that's particularly interesting. And without thinking, you grab the lure. And then you start to be off, with, off and running with that lure in a long story. And if it, in the moment of realizing that, or in the middle of realizing that, you realize that not only are you not here now, but the mind is uh, cringed up, the mind is uh, contracted, doesn't feel good, you're not happy. And I would at that moment be in the middle of a crunched up mind, And the voice of Sharon would float into my mind and it would say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I'd think to myself, I'm not happy. And then I realized, put this foot down exactly clearly, if I were walking. Put that foot down clearly. Put this foot down clearly. Put that fat foot down clearly. Or take this breath, let it out. Take this breath, let it out. Be here now. 
And all of a sudden, the whole thing is gone, and Sylvia is happy. It was a really very wonderful... It's kind of a, a 30-second rule, except somebody has to tell you the cookie's on the floor. But, you know, yeah, sometimes it takes you a moment, to, a while to catch it. But the way that you catch it is it's a disagreeable feeling in the mind. I'm not happy. Remember, Sylvia, be happy. So I tell it to you, remember, be happy. So I'm going to end by just uh, recalling uh, Laura's question this morning when she said, uh, how much time should we spend doing X and Y when we're here? So one way, uh, 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 and Mary Grace said quite appropriately, uh, many people do whole hours of sitting, many people do the whole retreat with that, many people begin a sitting or end a sitting with conscious application of the mind towards blessing, blessing oneself. And uh, you surely know from your previous retreat experience, blessing others as well. And really, I think that you can do however, however it arises naturally in your mind. The inclination to bless arises naturally. That's what you're doing. If you're not doing that, it's not what you're doing. That there doesn't really have to be a big dividing line between now I'm doing X and now I'm doing Y. It's all cordial mindfulness. I really think that that loving-kindness practice is attention to the third foundation. And it's specifically mindfulness of the presence or absence of goodwill in the mind. And it's specifically reminiscent, it specifically calls on the Buddha's teaching of the four efforts, noticing whether wholesome states are present in the mind and if they're not cultivating them, noticing if wholesome states are present in the mind and if they are keeping them, noticing if unwholesome states are present in the mind and if they are trying to encourage their passing, and put them down, and if there aren't, and you notice there aren't unwholesome states, keeping them out. It's a very, it's a, it's a very wonderful, clear practice. Sometimes I think wise effort is the undersung hero of the Eightfold Path, but I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial. The idea that I want my mind to dwell in that kind of I want my mind to be a good neighborhood where it's safe. Deepama, a teacher of my teachers and a woman I very much admired who I had the great pleasure of meeting, uh, said in response to people who was a very, very accomplished teacher and meditator, uh, someone asked her, what's in your mind? And she said, well, not a lot. peace and uh, equanimity and loving-kindness. I'd like to have that. The practice of blessing is eminently beneficial. It cleanses you. It sweetens your disposition. So I'll leave this talk with that. That was uh, 
Henry Ward Beecher, a Congregationalist, Congregational minister in the 19th century, very staunch and important abolitionist. The habit of blessing is eminently beneficial. It sweetens your disposition. So we'll just sit. May we meet this moment and all moments fully and as a friend. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.